There was a man that claimed to be Billy the Kid named Brushy Bill Roberts. You may have heard his story, as it is pretty well known, but today my story for you is about a man that made no formal claim to being Billy the Kid during his life, which makes him even more mysterious. His claim as Billy the Kid began when his various friends and associates began to propagate the story after his death. Could Billy the Kid have lived? Was his death a cover-up? And was he really living out the rest of his life with a secret identity? What lies beneath this story? John Miller. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. Hi friends and taffophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle. Today we have Dallin with us. Woo! Hey Dallin. It's on me. Again. It is you again. <laughs> I thought you would like this story and I knew that you knew nothing about it, but might think it's interesting because it's a story about Billy the Kid. I don't really know anything about Billy the Kid, except for the Emilio Estevez Young Guns movie. <laughs> well... For this story, you don't need to know a whole lot more because what you know is pretty much what I think most people in the world knows. Young Guns, you know, we've heard that story of Billy the Kid. His name is known all over the world for his famous outlaw life. His story is larger than life, and it has reached mythological proportions in years since he lived. He was said to have killed 21 men, the first one when he was only 12 years old, when he stabbed a man for insulting his mama. I've been there. Don't insult a guy's mama. Amen. And when a friend was murdered, he became leader of a gang of ruffians who killed other bad men. Though just a kid, he was brave, cold-blooded, and accompanied every kill with a laugh. Oh my. He was left-handed and shot with both skill and deadly aim with pistol or rifle. And there wasn't a horse he couldn't tame, a lady he couldn't charm, and a stranger that he couldn't befriend with that charismatic way of his, or a foe he couldn't terrify with nothing more than a sideways glance from his penetrating blue eyes. <laughs> Are you sure you aren't describing me here? <laughs> oh, oh. He came through numerous gunfights unscathed and escaped jail so many times that it was said that no prison could hold him. All of this, and he was killed, supposedly, at the early age of 21. The number poetically is supposedly how many people he killed. Oh, that's ironic. <laughs> he was slain from an ambush by a former friend turned lawman who betrayed him for money and glory. But this is the story as it's been told over and over again. It is huge, larger than life, 
and maybe that's the way he wanted it to be, but as the years have gone by, the story gets larger and larger. Most of it's probably fable and lore, and my story for you today may be continuing the myths that have surrounded <laughs> his name for a century or more. Starting it off right here, I have no proof of this story, but this is as the sources say. This is where we're going with it. The sources never lie. You never know. <laughs> I'm not saying that all these sources are credible, but we're going to go with this. So most historians agree that Billy the Kid was shot and killed by Sheriff Pat Garrett, July 14th, 1881. And the only proof that they have of that is the word of Pat Garrett and Pete Maxwell. All these years later, there are still questions that have remained unanswered. And there are those that question their claim. And there are theories, theories that suggest a hoax, conspiracy, and a cover-up. That's right. It's my kind of Wild West. So I first saw the name John Miller and read his story when I went to the Pioneer Home Cemetery in Prescott, Arizona. And as I researched who is buried there, it came across an interesting article on the Pioneer Home webpage. It was entitled, Another Billy the Kid? It was published on angelfire.com. I'll have the link for you on our website. And as I looked into this article and into John Miller, I found more and more articles and my information is from these articles that I found. I had never heard of the man named John Miller, as I'm sure most of you haven't either. In the Pioneer Cemetery, there isn't a specific lot marked with his name. There's just an area and a larger marker with many of the names of those who had been interred there before they began to have permanent markers placed for each person. It's up a small hill and it's pretty deserty there. I don't know if desert-y is a word, but... Might as well be. It's kind of desert-like. Has the occasional cactus, sparse grasses, wildflowers, a few trees. I found his name on the marker with all the other names. And as I always do, I felt a little sad for anyone without their own memorial marker. And I think it was just in a time back far enough and this pioneer home for the elderly, they were kind of doing the best they could and at least had a cemetery for those that had lived in the home and didn't have another place that their family wanted them buried. For sure. If you haven't heard my first episode on this cemetery, it's episode 11, Big Nose Kate. She also lived in this pioneer home and is buried there but being the famous gal that she was, she does have a marker for her. But the Pioneer Home, it's basically what the name says, a retirement home for Arizonans that had pioneered the state and territory. And you had to be living in Arizona for a certain amount of time. Last time, I read a bit from an article from Life magazine from 1947. It was talking a little bit about this home and the people that were living there and it it's really pretty hysterical just old you know miners and trappers and people that were just these rugged individuals that eked out you know a living and a place here in the Arizona territories and I have another little piece of it for you here and they're talking about the home many of the most colorful pioneers have died in recent years and only a few remain of the original group who helped dedicate the home back in 1910. 
Prescott was selected as the site, partly to appease the local citizenry for removal of the state capital from Prescott to Phoenix in 1889, partly because of the town's colorful and historical background. Founders of Prescott, lacking surveying instruments, laid out the town square by sighting along a frying pan. The early settlers were mainly cattlemen who grazed their herds in the valley and mining men who dug millions of dollars worth of gold, silver, zinc, and copper out of the hills. Bronco George, an old freighter who died at the home recently, loved to show visitors where tracks of the mule and oxen drawn ore wagons followed the drainage lines up the hillsides and cut deep grooves into the solid granite rock. The early settlers gave colorful but obscene names to the canyons, hills, and other geophysical features around Prescott, which posed a delicate problem for the U.S. Forestry Service when it made maps of the region. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> As the result of a compromise, today's maps have such enigmatic designations as S.H. Mountains, D.A. Canyon, and S.A. Basin. The discreet tourist knows enough not to ask what they mean. <laughs> As the pioneers would tell you, in the early days of Prescott, everybody lived in or out of the saloons, gambling and dance halls, and other places of masculine diversion. Best known of the saloons was the Palace Bar, which had a reputation as the hottest gambling spot between Mexico and the Canadian border. A famed dance hall was Lida's Place, run by Lida Winchell, a tall, frowsy blonde who died at the home about four years ago. Old Lida sold beer for a dollar a bottle, one old-timer recalls, which in that day, that had to be a lot. A lot of money. In the back of her place was a fiddler and guitarist who played music for dancing. When the music started, she made everybody get up and dance. When the couples got back to their tables, they'd find their beer gone. Then old Lydia would yell, time for another beer, and everybody'd buy another bottle of beer. When you'd wake up, you'd find she'd sold you the same bottle of beer six times. <laughs> when old Lida died, there was no relatives to claim her body. To die without friends or relatives seems to be the lot of most of the old pioneers, but that is not to say they do not die serene and happy. The touching death of Wild Bill Forbes, a Confederate veteran, is a case in point. In many ways, Forbes is symbolic of the early Arizona pioneer, and if they had their way about it, most of the old-timers would probably like to die as he did. A nurse, finding the old warrior about to drift away, asked him if he had any last request. Yup, I'd like some whiskey, he said in a whisper. The nurse, knowing nothing would hurt or save him anymore, brought him a water glass full of whiskey. She put a glass drinking tube in it, a wild bill, so far gone that he could hardly swallow. As he sucked up on the tube, however, a sparkle came into his eyes. He drank the whole glass of whiskey. Smacking his lips, he whispered to the nurse, Damn, that's good. With that, the old man closed his eyes and died. <laughs> Say less. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be really interesting to read a whole book on the life at this home. So our guy, John Miller, 
first comes into historical record on August 8, 1881, when he was married to a Mexican girl named Isadora at Las Vegas, New Mexico Territory. And yes, there is a Las Vegas, New Mexico. At the wedding ceremony, Miller was reported to be wearing a pistol on his hip and to have appeared weak with a relative fresh bullet wound, easily visible through his shirt. Shortly after they were wed, Miller and his new bride left Vegas for the West. With his wife Isadora driving a fully loaded wagon and with Miller riding a horse in front with a herd of seven head of cattle, they traveled at night and slept during the day. And the couple eventually made it to Albuquerque. And from there to Reserve, a mining town, where they stayed until Miller recovered from his chest wound. At the time, the Millers moved to Kemato area, where Miller got a job as a cook in the cattle company known as Nation's Ranch. Not long after John began working there, Miller got into a gunfight with a Mexican ranch hand. Although neither men were wounded in the fight, the fight cost Miller his job, and he and Isidora were forced to flee, and they went into the Zuni Mountains in north-central New Mexico territory. Along the way, the Millers met a prominent cattleman and rancher, Jesus Ariacho, who hired Miller to look after a section of his large herd. They stayed there for the next five years. Ariacho promised Miller he could have half of the new cattle that would be born during that time. Throughout the five years, the Millers lived in caves and abandoned cabins and kept a pretty low profile. When the five years was up, Ariacho was good to his promise. The Millers soon built a house and a ranch for himself on a hillside south of Ramah that would later be known as Miller's Canyon. Over the next several years, Miller got established and was a talented horseman, a prominent rancher, and they continually added on to their house. He and Isadora made lots of friends in the community, and they seemed to be well-liked. The couple was known for housing or feeding travelers and those that needed help. They helped out their neighbors when they were down on their luck. Miller was known to always wear a pistol and had a rifle ready by the door of his house. Miller also was reportedly always on guard, acting like a man being hunted by the law. He seldom discussed his past openly, indicating that he could be hiding something. Miller also loved to show off his incredible skill with a pistol, and he would teach some of his tricks to his younger friends. He also had a favorite trick, and that was to have someone tie a rope around his wrist as tight as they could. Then he could slip his hands out of the tied ropes with ease. Many times he showed others the numerous bullet wounds, scars that he had on his body. So he'd obviously been through some stuff. I mean, he had lots of bullet hole wounds. <laughs> <laughs> his friends later said of him that he loved to tell stories about Billy the Kid. Ooh. And that he knew a tremendous amount about him and the events of the Lincoln County War. And yet, Miller didn't come out and actually say he was Billy the Kid. Nevertheless, nearly all those that he told his stories to were able to connect the dots, and they believed that he truly was the kid. Apparently, though, on a few rare occasions, Miller did confide in a few trusted friends that he was the infamous outlaw. His friends said that John Miller was an honest and a trustworthy man, and that he was not the type to tell lies. So therefore, when he confided in those few that he was truly Billy the Kid, he was believed without a question. There were also rare occasions in which Miller would get drunk, and it was said that he blurted out that he was the kid, only to go back on the claims when he sobered up. His wife Isadora, who only spoke Spanish, seemed to be far more open about the subject, and she openly admitted that her husband was the kid. 
friends noticed that the Millers had a large trunk that seemed to be their most prized, important possession. It was always locked, and many believed that the trunk was full of items from Miller's former life as Billy the Kid. Despite the fact that his neighbors all believed Miller to be the outlaw, none of them apparently thought much about it, or maybe it was like that was all in the past, but they all loved the Millers. John Miller was said to closely resemble Billy the Kid physically. He had similar sloping shoulders, buck teeth, outturned thumbs, a heavy brow, small hands, big ears, blue eyes. He also resembled him in other characteristics, such as being fluent in Spanish, incredibly dexterous with pistols and rifles, having a penchant for making friends of just about everyone he knew, had a quick temper and easily quick sense of humor, and he was very generous. In the late 1890s or early 1900s, the couple adopted a two-year-old Navajo boy who apparently was unwanted by his mother. The Millers named the child Max and raised him as their own son. Max was the only child that they would have. They never had any children of their own. Meanwhile, the Rama Zuni area was plagued by horse thieves and cattle rustlers, and it seemed that Miller often acted as an intermediary between his neighbor ranchers and the outlaws. Miller was friendly with everyone, and he even fed and sheltered the outlaws sometimes, and he would go and bargain with them for the return of his neighbor's cattle and animals. His connection with the outlaws, his neighbors believe, came from his life from before as Billy the Kid. Sounds about right. <laughs> right? One of the stories that his friends would later claim about him was that during 1902, a time that money was short and they were struggling financially, Miller traveled to Montana with six other outlaws and there they robbed a bank of $8,000. By 1918, there was a severe drought and pestilence that had ruined their ranch. Times were desperate. Isadora was losing her eyesight and had a useless hand due to being caught in a gopher trap. Miller himself was suffering from rheumatism to cap it all off. Their son, Max Miller, had enlisted in the U.S. Army during World War I and had been reported missing in action in Germany. The Millers had had enough. It was time to move on and they headed to Arizona. They settled in the small town of San Simon, close to the border of Mexico. They were relieved when they were visited by their son, Max, who was safe and had been discharged from the army. Phew. Yeah. That had to have been terrifying. Kind of an awkward conversation. Family counseling moments. No kidding. Hearing of a mineral springs in the town of Buckeye that might help his rheumatism, Miller and Isadora moved there in 1920. John Miller was soon a horse trainer on a nearby ranch, and after he saved up enough money, he built a ranch of his own again near the town Liberty. Miller again made himself quite popular with his neighbors, many of whom, again, began to believe that he was Billy the Kid. Miller was also known to listen to a radio program about Billy the Kid, and he would just get furious when it would report errors about the kid. A tragedy occurred in the late 1920s or early 1930s. The Miller house caught fire with Isadora inside. John Miller and some friends were able to get inside and pull her out of the burning building before it was entirely consumed by the fire. But it was too late. She had already died, most likely from the smoke inhalation. Following Isadora's death, Miller's physical and mental health understandably began to quickly go downhill. Amen. 
When he fell off a roof he was repairing, his son Max decided it was finally time he be taken to a retirement home. On March 12, 1937, Miller was admitted into the Pioneer Home in Prescott, Arizona. Throughout the next few months, John Miller made repeated attempts to get a friend of his or his son to come visit him so that he could finally, quote, set the record straight. Oh my. However, his friends and his son were too busy and never reached him in time. Oh, brother. And he died on November 7th, 1937. He was then buried in the Pioneer Home Cemetery. Like we said, there's a memorial plaque that has his name along with the names of other pioneers buried in the cemetery. Sorry, Dad. Crippled elderly dad who is dying. I am too busy. To hear your final... <laughs> this is like the very first end of Les Mis. It's hilarious. <laughs> no, it's sad. He's like, all right, I'm going to tell it all. And then... Bum, bum, bum. I don't know. Five Nothing. Bucks says that he like stole a horse when he was like 12 and wanted to confess it to a like... Probably. Or like, oh, I just having a good time pretending I was William Bonney. I really was just a guy yeah. that got into some scrapes and stole a horse and got shot in the back and that's all it was. Or Who knows? It's pretty funny. So, remember the trunk that people thought was full of items that could tell them about their past? Oh yeah. Well, after he died, the trunk wound up property of the courts in Phoenix. And a court representative had this trunk with them, and he took it to Rama looking for Max, Miller's only heir. And while there interviewing Miller's old friends, the representative reportedly told them about the contents of the trunk and that they proved that John Miller was Billy the Kid. But since they weren't able to locate Max, they weren't able to give it to him, and it probably returned back to Phoenix and then got put in that giant warehouse that all of Indiana Jones' boxes to say, yeah. to be in. Oh, brother. <laughs> no one knows where it was reportedly lost after that. Freaking naturally. So nobody knows what was in the trunk or where it ever went. Again, it was probably like a couple pairs of pants and a shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being like, that would be really funny. <laughs> Yeah, we don't, we don't have any idea. So far, though, there is no record of John Miller that's been discovered before August 8th, 1881, which is less than a month after Billy the Kid was allegedly killed by Pat Garrett. So they can't find birth record or anything. He just appeared. So if John Miller was the kid, how did he escape from Pat Garrett at Fort Sumner? I mean, apparently Miller told different versions of this to different friends. So one of the versions was that he was shot in the chest a week or so before July 14th. So this is remembering we're thinking of him as Billy the Kid. So if he'd already been shot in the chest and that Isadora was nursing him back to health when Garrett accidentally killed someone else, he says a Mexican sheep herder in the Maxwell house that night. Oh my. So that wasn't even him. Another version is that Miller was himself shot by Garrett, again, Billy the Kid, shot by Garrett in the Maxwell house, but he played dead while Garrett quickly inspected him. 
when Miller was then carried away by his friends to be prepared for burial by some Mexican women, they found him still breathing and substituted his body with another man that had been killed the night before. They put that body into the casket, so it wasn't his body that was buried. Well, that's awkward. In this latter scenario, Pat Garrett never would have learned that Billy wasn't killed. He would have thought that he did kill Billy the Kid. Yeah. He says that Isadora carefully nursed him until he could be taken by night to reserve, where he then recovered. His brush with death convinced him to leave Lincoln County and to live under assumed name in a very sparse populated area. So some of the other questions that people have around all of this is if Miller was the kid, how did he come by all the wagon, provisions, the small herd of cattle that he and Isadora had in their possession when they arrived in Las Vegas? I don't know. Me neither. Okay, okay, but for real, who was Isadora, like, really? <laughs> she claimed she lived at Fort Sumner when her husband, Billy, the kid, was allegedly killed by Garrett, but no record exists showing an Isadora living in Sumner in 1881. Now, it's been theorized that she was really Manuela Baudry, the widow of Charlie Baudry. But there seems to be evidence that Manuela married someone else after Charlie's death. Scandal. So, if Miller wasn't Billy the Kid, why did Isadora go along with the story that he was? And surely she would have known for sure whether he was Billy the Kid or not. Or maybe he was just like a really good liar or a really <laughs> bad liar. Okay, but like, do we ever actually know what the contents of Miller's mysterious trunk that like proved he was the kid was? Because like, I feel like people would want to know that. I mean, really, is it just like in a basement somewhere or in a warehouse? <laughs> I'm feeling a treasure hunt coming on. <laughs> this is Southwestern treasure. Right. Gonna get Nicolas Cage. If John Miller wasn't Billy the Kid with a alias and a new life, who was John Miller? <laughs> and why is there no yet discovered record of him prior to August 1881? There's an online book called Ernest Albert Tejan, Missionary and Colonizer by Gary Tejan. And he has excerpts there about John Miller, who was an old timer living in Candy Kitchen, New Mexico, who many were convinced that really was Billy the Kid. And in this story, it has a lot of first person encounters with Miller and some of the things that he told the people that lived there at that time. It talks about how some men had ridden all day and it was coming to be night and being many miles from home, they decided to stop by and see if they could stay all night with John Miller. And they said that, quote, after supper, we got to talking about Billy the Kid. Of course, he always said he wasn't Billy the Kid, but he told how many times Billy the Kid was shot. There was a six shooter hanging up on the wall, so I said, What's all those notches on that six-shooter? He said, well, those represent the men I've killed. It was about 
eight inches longer than the ordinary six-shooter. That's a six-shooter. <laughs> Don't we just call that a rifle? I mean, you might as well put a stock on that thing. Goodness. <laughs> I see you. We got to talking and he pulled off his shirt and showed us his back where he'd been shot. Where the shots came out, there was a white spot about the size of a 50-cent piece. Where they went in, they were about the size of a 22 bullet. The white spot was real small. He had been shot about 12 times. You could tell real plain which ones were shot in front and which ones were shot in the back. Then he got a rope and put it on his wrists and said, now tie me up. Tie me like this you was putting handcuffs on. So I tied it tight like I was hobbling a horse. He just turned his hands and rolled it down off his arms just like that. Now he said, Billy the kid could do that. The next morning when we went to feed the horses, his wife said in Spanish, his name is not John Miller. His name is Billy the Kid. She told us how, when he was shot and wounded, she took care of him and had hid him in a straw mattress when the officers had come into her house. Her name was Isadora. When we got ready to go, he came out, and there was a hawk flew over, and he said, See that hawk? And he never took aim or nothing, just shot from the hip, and that hawk came right down. We got to talking about shooting, and he told Rulon, Now, throw that hat up in the air, and if it ain't got five bullet holes in it, when it comes down, I'll buy you a brand new Stetson hat. So Rulon said, Why, you can't do that. Nobody can put five bullet holes in a hat in the air like that. So he threw that hat up, and when he picked it up, it had five bullet holes in it. And it wasn't so that they came in one way and went out the other. There was five holes in it. Oh man, I wish. John Miller used to go over and visit old Herman Tacklenburg a lot. My dad and I went over there one night, and Tacklenburg gave us a bed, and him and John Miller sat out there in a log all night long and talked. Next morning, John Tacklenburg told my dad that Miller was Billy the Kid but he was trying to do right now and going under a different name. But not to cross him, and you won't have any trouble with him. All the outlaws were acquainted with John Miller. There was a Carl Manning that stayed with him quite a bit. He told Miller that he was going to steal this one horse from my dad, and Miller said, Why are you going to do that? These are poor people, and that's all they have. Manning said that it didn't make no difference. He liked that horse and was going to steal him. So John Miller came in and told my dad, and dad put a chain around the stable door and put a lock on it. The next night after John Miller was there, he went down there in the night and found the chain near, nearly filed through. <laughs> a reporter from Gallup interviewed Tacklenburg in his later years and heard his story. As a stowaway from Germany, he came to this country and worked his way to Fort Sumner area, where he knew Billy the Kid as a youngster. Later, both of them came to the Rama area, and Tacklenburg recognized Bonnie, but kept his identity close. Also, Tijin, his brother, used to work with Max Miller, the very same Max Miller, who was the adopted child, by John. And he said that on several occasions when Max had started to drink, he told Joe and Adrian that Billy the Kid was his dad. So maybe it was just loosed by when he was drinking, started talking. Then there was also some doubts that Pat Garrett really killed Billy the Kid. One of the reasons was that John Poe, who was Pat Garrett's deputy on the scene that night, is one that questioned his claim. So one of the men that were there didn't totally believe it. Oh my. And he believes that the wrong man was killed 
and that Garrett and Maxwell covered it up. Oh, that would be wild. So Pat Garrett, he wrote his book, and it's called The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. And he wrote that in response to those questions. And he wrote this at least a year after the shooting. But since that time, that version of events that it's been pretty accepted as historical account of the kid's death. Yeah, had a whole year to figure out his story. Exactly. And his story was that he and his deputies, John Poe and Kip McKinney, rode out to Fort Sumner. They'd gotten word that the kid was hiding out in the area. So they get there and they hide out and watch from an orchard on the edge of town on the night of July 14th. Garrett's account states that, quote, he saw someone resembling the kid approach Pete Maxwell's house and followed him. But Deputy Poe said that Garrett had already gone into the house to question Pete Maxwell before the man they believed to be the kid got there. And by Poe's account, Garrett left the deputies on watch outside where they were seen by the man who next entered the home, the man they thought to be Billy the Kid. Oh my. So that's a significant difference. Yeah, like seriously. So Garrett claims what happened next was that Billy the Kid entered Pete Maxwell's darkened bedroom and in Spanish asked Maxwell the identity of the men outside. Garrett claims he recognized the kid's voice, and so then he shot. That is not grounds to shoot a man. I guess when you're a wanted outlaw with a, you know, wanted dead or alive on your head, I guess. I don't know. But you sound like him. Exactly. So by Garrett's account, Billy the Kid would have been too smart to take that kind of a risk, just walk up at the house with these strangers standing on the porch. But if you weren't Billy the Kid, and maybe you were just someone else or one of his friends in the area then you wouldn't feel nervous about walking up on the porch with these men there right the deputies but if it was billy he would have stayed hidden out right he wouldn't have just gone into this house oh, no with doubt. these strangers that would seen him when you have that price on your head then they say there's the matter of language why did he come in speaking spanish maxwell didn't speak spanish he spoke english and we know that the kid spoke Spanish fluently, and he did have a lot of Mexican friends in the area, but why would he have walked in Maxwell's room that night and spoke to him in Spanish? Why not? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he thought he would just know what he was saying. So the question is, somebody went into Pete Maxwell's bedroom that night and very likely died, but was it the kid, as Garrett claims it was, or could it have been one of his friends? That would be awkward. Now, maybe they had to cover it up. Maybe this was the guy that died the night before. Oh, my. Remember how in the story before, there yeah. was a man that died the night before. I mean, that would be a pretty good cover-up. So, if the kid was hiding in the area and he heard the shooting or he heard of the shooting, he definitely could have escaped and got a new identity. Although, John Miller... He said two different things. He said he was shot before, and then he said that he was shot by Pat Garrett and pretended to be dead. So... Either one. Questions. Bit of both. Questions. So then, after the shooting, Garrett said that he and Maxwell took charge of the body. Second, Maxwell's reported to have written the coroner report and the verdict for a coroner's inquest. The local postmaster signed the inquest verdict as foreman the following morning. 
but he didn't examine the body and the jurors never met as a group. So if it was just the word of Maxwell and Pat Garrett, they could have said just about anything. The third thing that makes their actions suspect is that the coroner's report and the inquest verdict were entrusted to Garrett to file at the Lincoln County Courthouse. Well, supposedly neither document has ever been found. There's supposedly a copy that appears to be the inquest verdict that was discovered decades later. And there were misspellings and use of marks or like signatures witnessed by Pete Maxwell. And that suggests that some of the juror's signatures may have been falsified. Well, whoop-de-doo. <laughs> the fourth reason is that the body was buried the following morning. It seems that it wasn't publicly displayed as was the custom Especially with these high-profile outlaws that were brought in in those days. Oh yeah. No photos were taken of the dead body or Garrett with the body. And that was also a custom oh, to yeah. have the lawmen, right? Even years later when like Bonnie and Clyde, man, they took all kinds of pictures with the lawmen and the dead bodies to show this is them. Like we got them and we're getting the money, right? We're the ones that brought down these outlaws. That wasn't done. And then the fifth thing is that Billy the Kid had a reward on his head. Well, Garrett, he wasn't necessarily a rich man. And under these circumstances, he could have totally substantiated the claim that he had killed Billy the Kid. And why not take the loot, you know? Why not take the reward? Oh, for sure. Why no photo op? Nothing, you just got Billy the Kid. Yeah. I mean, this guy's got means and motive. <laughs> exactly. Then we wonder, why would Pete Maxwell help Pat Garrett cover it up? Well, there's also a story that Billy the Kid had been romantically involved with Paulita Maxwell, Pete's younger sister. Oh my. The relationship is thought to have gotten more intense following the kids' escape from the Lincoln County Jail. And maybe Maxwell's motive for helping in the cover-up might have been to get the kid out oh, of man. his sister's life. Family counseling. Crazy, huh? Yeah. But, like I said before, Garrett's account in his book has pretty much been taken as... Fact. ...the history. And let's face it, he probably was more reliable, right? Upright yeah. and honest than some chunk of yes, yeah. yes, all these outlaws and everybody. So his account may be completely the truth, and maybe it's just one of those things where there's just kind of some holes in the story that we just don't really understand. But it seems kind of self-serving that he, you know, wrote this book that, of course, he made money off of, and by saying that he killed Billy the Kid. Like, right. Maybe that made it that he killed Billy the Kid. You know what I'm saying? And even in the book, he says that Poe and McKinney, his deputies, questioned the identity of the victim oh, at the time cool. of the shooting. And then he goes on to refute the allegations. But doesn't that seem like that would be easily enough to yeah. substantiate? Like, come in here, you guys are standing outside. Come and look at Billy the Kid dead upstairs. Right. Be our witnesses, right? Then in the 1930s, Brushy Bill Roberts surfaced in Texas, claiming to be Billy the Kid. But after a whole lot with that, his claim was proven to be hoax. Still, 
the controversies keep going. They still persist to this day. And that's because there are those contradictions and irregularities and unanswered questions that just don't seem to go away. You know what I think? What? Aliens. Ooh. Illuminati. They just took him? <laughs> it all comes together. Oh, brother. Since that time, I saw that in 2005 that there were two southeastern New Mexico investigators that had gone to obtain DNA from John Miller. Oh my. And they were wanting to compare the DNA to a bench, a wooden bench, that had had blood on it, supposedly, from Billy the Kid. There's a lot of supposedly's shot. in this. Exactly. <laughs> and so they were hoping to compare those, but I just can't imagine how much DNA would be left in some wood from 1881 and how much DNA was still left in this old cowboy buried in the Prescott Cemetery I mean, to compare. Chances are just a hobo got a bloody nose sitting on a park bench. Exactly. <laughs> and anyway, supposedly they were able to pretty much figure out where John Miller was buried and it was one of two places and they dug up both of these remains and they did some testing on it and it was inconclusive. Oh, inconclusive. Awesome. <laughs> Aliens. Surprise. So they didn't get their big break. They didn't find out if he really was Billy the Kid. They've been trying for years to get permission to exhume Billy the Kid, where they think Billy the Kid is. But again, I mean, so long ago, there's been floods, there's been markers, like, not even there for years yeah. and years. Like, even if they could find where they thought is his grave, like, would it really even be him and the cemetery where Bushy Bill Roberts is in? Yeah. They don't want, you know, to cooperate either. I mean, they have what they call the real Billy the Kid. Oh, yeah. And they get lots of people coming there and tourists. lots of tourists. Yeah. And so they don't really want to cooperate with that. So I feel like it's one of those mysteries that we're really never going to know. It's too bad. But it's interesting, right? Oh, yeah. It's one of those conspiracies. Our story is just like a big conspiracy theory. I don't do conspiracy theories. You don't? The moon landing was a fake. It was not. Darling. <laughs> <laughs> but... At the same time, we have this man, John Miller, who was buried in the Prescott Cemetery. Wow. Who was he? What did he do? What was his life before the time we know of he and Isadora? Heck if I know. What lies beneath? We have no fetching idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I mean, like, I seem to remember, too. This is kind of random and thinking back, but this was one of the first podcast ideas that you had, wasn't it? Uh -huh. It was this one and Big Nose Kate, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of cool that we finally did this, what, like like a year later? <laughs> yes, over, over a year later. I and mean, you were thinking about it for a while, and you were yeah. doing the research and everything, and, well, here you go, America. Yeah, it it's like it never really got more clear, and so I was like, you know what? It's just interesting that this is what this man was thought to be, and we do have details of his life, and whether he just really 
wanted to be an outlaw in his mind. Like, if that's just <laughs> was his, like, dream. We and all so, want to be an outlaw. Yeah, he just wanted to be Young Guns, you know? He wanted to be Emilio Estevez. You know, I'm pretty sure we didn't even finish that movie. I think you made me stop halfway through. Cause uh, that was a couple years back. Maybe it was, I was I pretty it was young. a little too intense. The, br the brains were flying. The brains were flying, oh, no. that's for sure. <laughs> I, yeah, I might have been like, oh, yeah. When I watched this back in the 80s, I didn't see like it was this bad oh my <laughs> i don't remember it was yeah. probably early 90s or something but i mean young guns is just kind of a fun it's pretty great epic adventure movie and loosely based on history what do you mean 100 <laughs> percent accurate 100 percent, of course john miller's hollywood. in the credits <laughs> yeah you can trust hollywood always it's an interesting story we have no fetching idea that's okay. It's probably one of those things that's better, like, immortalized in American, you know, Southwest. Yeah, just another outlaw story in the Wild West. People like to hear it anyhow. Yeah, one of the most famous outlaws of all time. Like, everyone all over the world knows the name Billy the Kid. Right. And I think it just makes his story a little more exciting to think that Maybe he still got away and lived a quiet life somewhere. One more thing that I have to put in there is that sometime during all of this trying to figure out Miller, Smithsonian Magazine took the picture of Miller and the picture of Billy the Kid and oh, they superimposed that. the pictures. And they really kind of, there's something there. They look pretty similar? Just the way he stands and the one way his arm hangs is almost exactly the same. And the way his hand is turned, just kind of his gait, it's similar, but I'm not sure I could say it was exact, but it's really interesting. So I'll make sure that I post that picture as well. And you guys can make your own decisions what you think. Thanks, Dallin, for being with us today. Good times. John Miller, who was he? And was he just John Miller? Had he been his own kind of outlaw back in the day and it was just easier to call himself Billy the Kid, who had all of the notoriety and fame? We do know he was a rancher, a horseman, a husband, a friend to all, the bad guys and the good guys, and everyone in between. He was a man that took in an unwanted child and made him his own. He was a cowboy, a rambler, a gunslinger, and possible outlaw. And maybe, just maybe, the most famous outlaw in American history. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stones bones and shadows also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners